continue in worship as we consider the Word of God. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for the joy it is to be in this place today for the purpose of knowing you through our fellowship together and through prayer and through worship and through the consideration of your word and our prayer is this morning God that you would by your spirit do a work in our hearts to bring us to greater faith, greater understanding and greater obedience and God we would pray for those this morning who are having a hard go of it I think specifically of Karen and Conrad and Rick and Kim and Ron they're not feeling well some in the hospital and we just pray that your hand would be on them that not only would you help them to get better but God in these moments they would know you as their comforter and their savior and God we pray as we consider your word this morning that you would open up our hearts we would be willing to consider the truth of your word and its effect on our life in Jesus name amen good morning my name's Greg one of the pastors here if you and I haven't met well maybe we'll get a chance to I want to remind you of one thing. In your worship folder, there is an opportunity. An opportunity. It's on the inside cover on the lower uh, section, left hand. Inside cover says volunteers needed. This is your great opportunity. Some of you have run out of leaves. And we want to give you the opportunity to collect some leaves. Uh, every, every fall, it seems like almost every fall, the trees on our property drop their leaves. I am... And I don't know if you've been around. We have about nine acres here that God has blessed us with to, uh, to steward for his purposes. And we have one or two or a thousand trees. So we need uh, two or three people to volunteer to come out once the leaves start falling. Maybe once a week. Just kind of keep us current on that. Uh, if you have a, a full-time job and you're not able to do that, we just simply ask you to quit that job and come and do that. I'm kidding. Obviously, it'd be, your schedule would need to allow for it. So if you would like to take a couple of hours a week during the fall till the leaves stop dropping, as somebody said once, it would be fine if they did it all on one day, it, right? But they don't. It's like they drop them, and then you get them all picked up, and then a wind comes by, and, and the wind watches you raking, if you didn't know this. Perfectly calm, you get done raking, go in the house, grab your iced tea, and then it's completely covering your lawn again. And uh, so uh, give us a call at the church office and we will make sure you are equipped with all the tools needed to pick up the leaves. Thank you in advance. I don't know if you knew this or not, we have always relied on volunteers for the groundskeeping of our property and so we're very grateful for that. So, okay, Psalm chapter two is all about God's call on your life to rake leaves. Not really, I'm kidding. Promises. Let's think a little bit about promises. When somebody makes a promise to you, you probably wonder at least two questions, if not more. But maybe sum it up in two questions when somebody makes a promise to you. 
Will they keep it? Will they keep their promise? And can they keep their promise? Those two are really, really important considerations. Somebody makes a promise to you. The first question is, will they keep their promise? I mean, they may choose not to keep their promise to us. Now, the other option is maybe they do want to keep their promise. They're motivated by the right things in their heart, and they want to keep their promise, but they simply do not have the ability to keep their promise. And so when somebody makes a promise to you, those are two really important considerations. Will they keep it? Will they be a person of their word and keep their promise? And can they keep their promise? The same questions apply to God when he makes a promise. The question is, will he keep his promises? And if you understand what the Bible teaches about God, the answer to that, pro that question is yes. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And the, the second answer to that or the second question has the same answer. Is he able to keep his promises? And the answer is yes. So God always keeps his promises, and God is always able to keep his promises. So this means God keeping his promises to the fullest extent is inevitable. It is unstoppable. It is a reality that is more certain than any other certainty. God's keeping of his promises are inevitable. That, that's the current in which the universe operates. It's God keeping his promises. If God were not to keep his promises, we wouldn't exist right now. That everything is reliant on God moment by moment always being willing to keep his promises and having the ability to keep his promises. So he's completely inevitable. So the question about God keeping his promises is not so much a question about God. Because the Bible is clear about God. He keeps his promises and he's always able to keep his promises. The question is, does my life look like someone that recognizes he keeps his promises? That's the question that we end up needing to ask. So let me illustrate this in a really ridiculous way. With somebody who doesn't keep his promises. The weatherman. <laughs> right? Okay, you're familiar with this guy. Other than Leon Hunsaker, he always kept his promises. Pineapple Express, coming through. Okay, so the weatherman says, this weekend, not this weekend, obviously, this weekend it is going to be cold and snowy. So whether or not you believe that weatherman is able to keep his word will be determined by what? How you dress. That fundamentally, if you walk outside in shorts and it is snowing and you are cold and uncomfortable, the problem was not the weatherman. The problem is you didn't believe he was going to keep his word. So the issue here is if God always says what is true and always says what will be true, Will we align our lives with the reality of his word? Does that make sense? So we're not trying to figure out, gee, I wonder if God keeps his promises. The Bible never wrestles with that. The Bible assumes that. What the Bible wrestles with and what, the, what we're going to wrestle with in Psalm 2 is whether or not I recognize the inevitability of God's fulfilling all of his promises and line my life up with those promises even though the fulfillment of some of those are yet to be fulfilled. Am I going to trust that God keeps his word? The Bible gives us two words for what happens to individuals. When we align our lives with 
God fulfilling his promises, that's called the place of blessing. If I live my life assuming God's premises aren't, promises aren't kept, that is called the place of judgment. And the issue is not what is God doing, the issue is what am I doing? That's what the issue is here. So, the title of the message today is The Power of God's Promises. And the first section of this passage is verses 1 through 6, which I just read. And so I've titled this section, verses 1 through 6, No One Can Stop God's Plan. The power of God's promise, no one can stop God's plan. Now, many of us don't realize this. I wasn't alive then because, uh, uh, well, I wasn't born yet. I was born after this event, World War II. Have you ever heard of this? Is this something you're familiar with? You know, it's kind of easy sitting where we sit today, especially for people like me who didn't live through those moments, to assume the inevitability of the victory of the Allies over Germany and Japan. We assume that, right? Well, the situation was much more precarious, maybe, than we would like to admit. Certainly, victory is not assured. We can't always assume that the good guys will win. There's no guarantee the good guys will win always, is there? Not in this world. And so we have these powerful forces, the powerful forces of the allies against the powerful forces of the Axis, and we wonder, well, who's going to win? We can make the mistake of thinking that's the nature of God's purposes. We've got the powerful forces of God and the powerful forces of evil, and oh my goodness, who's going to win? That's not the situation here. It's not the same kind of situation. The most powerful forces in the earth, the most powerful forces that have ever existed in our world are totally and completely unable to stop God from doing whatever he wants. Totally unable to do so. God has a plan and his plan will not be opposed in any way, shape, or form. So let's look at it. Verse 1 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do they? This is not a question of motive. We know the motive. The reason we plot against God is because we don't want God. We want to be God. This isn't a question of motive. This is a rhetorical question of why are you a moron? <laughs> you might say, the traffic outside my house is too loud, so I'm going to go out and stop the cars by stepping in front of them. And that may work out. Maybe they will stop, but you don't have the ability to stop them. So the question here is rhetorical. Why would you oppose God? That's stupid. That, that's just going to get you killed. This is a question of what's wrong with your intelligence. God is unstoppable. Why would you plot against the unstoppable God? The motive is obvious. The motive is rebellion against God. We don't want God because we don't like somebody in charge of us. And so we rebel against him. The question here, why would they do that? What's the point? Verse 2. The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the, the rulers of earth come together and they're going to oppose the purposes of God and they're going to plan together how to oppose the purposes of God. And notice there this word, opposed to his anointed. That's a really, really important word for the kingdom of Israel, specifically the kingdom of Judah, after the King David. Anointed refers to the one who has been made king by God's call. Remember, when Samuel was called by God to place David on the throne of Israel, Saul was still ruling, and God told Samuel to go and anoint David. And so he had a big horn 
full of oil, and he called David after some shenanigans. You can read the story. And, and he anoints David with oil. And that's a way of saying that God has called this one. God has called this one. This one has been set aside for a purpose. In the, in the case of David, set aside to be king over Israel. King over Israel. And we know David understood the anointing of the king was really, really important. Because notice, whenever he had opportunity to do harm to King Saul, who had been anointed, what would he do? He wouldn't do it. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And when an Amalekite bragged that he had killed King Saul, he hadn't, King Saul had killed himself. But when an Amalekite bragged that he had killed King Saul, what did King David do? He had him executed. You do not raise your hand against the anointed, the one who is anointed by God, called to a particular purpose. Everybody, when this psalm was written, understood. The anointed one here refers to not only David, but the one who was going to come from David, the Messiah. So the understanding here is not only is this, why are the nations raging against King David? It's not merely that. Why are the nations raging against the anointed one, the Messiah who was going to come and save the people of Israel. Why would the nations rage against this Messiah? It's ridiculous to, to stand against this Messiah. Second, second Samuel chapter 7 verse 14 is where this understanding come from. This was out of the covenant that God made with King David, and referring to King David's son, Solomon, but also to his son to come, that is the Messiah, verse 14 says, I will be to him a father, this is God speaking, and he shall be to me a son. Referring to King David's son. Not only Solomon, but the Messiah that is to come. And we understand here in Psalm chapter 2, this is who is being referred to. This son of God, the anointed one, why would you oppose this one? To oppose this Messiah is ridiculous because no one can stop God or his plan. Verse 3, they say to themselves, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These are the nations of, Israel, of the world saying, we don't have to follow God. We don't have to follow his anointed one. We will direct our own paths. Let's see God's response. This is kind of funny. Why do I say it's funny? Because God is laughing. Whenever God's laughing, it's funny. It's by definition funny. Verse four, he who sits in heaven laughs. Isn't that great? I mean, the entire world, that's the picture you have here, is the entire world stands up in opposition to God and God looks down, he just sort of chuckles to himself. He just sort of chuckles, you know, this is kind of like the little four-year-old who likes to wrestle with his dad. He comes running in and he says, I'm gonna pin you, dad. And dad just kind of laughs, like, oh, this is funny. It's so cute. But uh, yeah, let's wrestle. But dad's got to go easy on him, right? This is God to all of the most powerful forces in the world. God sits in heaven and he, and he laughs. Just an aside on this, because I'm not going to cover it later, so I want to touch on it now. When the forces of the world stand up in opposition to God and his Messiah, how do Christians respond? I call it the Kermit the Frog response. Now this dates me, makes me old, and some of the young people are like, Kermit the Frog, I know who that is. But there was a show on television, it was called The Muppet Show. My favorite two characters were the old guys up in the balcony. 
That's not enough about them, but they were the funniest guys in the show. But whenever something would go wrong on the stage, Kermit the Frog, who was both the director and the producer, something would go wrong on the stage, what would Kermit the Frog do? Do you remember? He would run around in circles with his head pointed to the sky, screaming, waving his arms over his head. That was his response. And this is the collective response of Christians when the world doesn't go our way. And if you wonder, just open up Facebook right now and look at your favorite Christian post on some political thing. It's essentially Kermit the Frog in a Facebook post. <laughs> and what is our God doing? He's just like, whatever. Whatever. I, I don't understand why we aren't responding like God. Now, we're not going to mock people because we're not God. But why are we getting so riled up? Why are we getting so riled up? The world's opposed to God. Is water wet? Is the sky blue? And we throw on our Kermit the Flog, and, and God just says, I got this figured out. You guys are so, oh, you're so cute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait a little bit longer, see if a few more people want to get saved, and then it is, it is on. Look what he says. Then he will speak. When is then? Verse 5. When is then? Then he will speak. It's not today. It's not right now. World's still, still doing its thing. But then, when then happens, then it's on. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and, in ter and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Can you oppose the king set by God? No, because you can't oppose God. More than that, and we're going to see this here in a minute, more than that, this king set on Zion by God is God. So you can't oppose this king because you can't oppose God. He will speak to them in his wrath. So what's going to happen is God is going to set his Messiah, his anointed one, the king, in his throne and he will not be opposed on that day. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion, of course, is in Jerusalem. You've got the, the Temple Mount. Maybe you're familiar with the Temple Mount. If, if you're not, Google it and look it up on your Google Maps or whatever. You've got the Temple Mount. Just south of the Temple Mount is what is called the City of David. It's a little bit lower in elevation. It's called the City of David or Mount Zion. It's kind of at a corner of the Valley of Ben-Hinnom and the Kidron Valley. So if you're on there, you can look at it. It's a, and it's a little hill. And that's where David had his palace. And that's where, where David conquered Jerusalem. And that was... Uh, un the understanding was that was the seat of the power of the anointed one. And what God is saying here is the son of David is going to sit in power on the throne of David, fulfilling God's promises to David, and the world and all of its power will not be able to oppose it. Because God's power cannot be stopped. This is the power of God's promises. This coalition of kings, this coalition of forces, whether it be a uh, hundred years ago, right now, or a hundred years from now, has absolutely zero threat to God's plan. God's plan has never been altered. He is not on plan B. He is on plan A. He is not at a single point had to scramble. The entire plan, every moment, is exactly as he has meant for it to go. And every time somebody gets up and says, I think I've figured out a way to foil God's plan, he just chuckles a bit. Good luck with that. That's not going to happen. How important is this psalm to us as believers? It's critically important. We know this because it was important to the apostles. The apostles took this psalm as a great comfort during their 
time. I want to look over at Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23 is where I'll be reading from. What has led up to this? Peter had healed a guy who had been crippled since birth. And as a result, he preached a sermon about God's grace through Jesus Christ to forgive any who would believe. And he had called accusation on the generation of Israel who had murdered the Messiah, including the religious leaders, calling for them to repent. As a result, the religious leaders had them arrested, and instead of repenting, they told the apostles that they must stop preaching in this name. That was their command. The religious leaders said, you must stop preaching in the name of Jesus and stop telling people we killed him, but you did. Stop telling people that. Now, in this particular occasion, they weren't beaten or flogged. They were only given a command from the authorities. They were not allowed. This would have made preaching in the name of Jesus in Judah in Jerusalem, illegal. These uh, religious leaders had the power to tell them not to do something, and if they said it, this means preaching the name of Jesus from this point on would be considered illegal. I love their response in verse 23 because it's a response that I think would be similar to ours. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they lifted when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, stop there. Who, is, who are these folks saying was the anointed one in Psalm 2? They're saying it's Jesus. It's their understanding. They're saying, listen, we know who the anointed one was. It was Jesus. Continuing, continuing on, middle of verse 27. There was both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What was their response when they were released? They prayed. What it was, tells you was going on inside of them? They were scared. And you say, well, I don't know if they were scared. Do you pray like this when you're scared? Sure you do. They, they've just been told preaching in the name of Jesus is illegal and they're not sure if they have the guts to do it. How do we know they're not sure if they have the guts to do it? What was their one prayer request? They only prayed for one thing. What was it? Did you read with me or were you asleep? You were looking up the Kidron Valley on Google. That's fine. <laughs> they prayed for boldness. Did you see that? What did they not pray for? The upcoming election. <laughs> Okay, I know that was rude. That was out of line, probably. 
You say they weren't democratics. Now, how? Well, listen, here's my point. Their mindset was the world's going to do what the world's going to do. We got a job. It's really, really, really simple. Understand the promises of God and align our lives with the reality that his plans cannot be stopped. And they will always be fulfilled. So therefore, and they're thinking, this is hard. They're thinking, okay, we got all these very, very powerful people, Herod, Pontius Pilate, religious leaders. They're telling us not to to preach Jesus. And then I've got Jesus, whose plans are never going to be stopped. Who should I follow? The one who always gets done what they're going to get done. Who's that? Jesus. So they say, okay, Lord, that's hard. They look really, really powerful. Herod, they look really powerful, don't they? Jesus, he looks, well, he looks powerful, but he's not here. He ascended. And so now we have to live by what? Faith. So I have to believe that what the Bible says is true. And what they, so they prayed, that's what they prayed for. They said, look, why do the Gentiles rage? Why does everybody freak out against the Lord? And remember, that's not a question of motive. It's a question of why are they being dumb? Lord, why are they opposed to your holy one? That's foolish. Lord, I want to not be opposed to the foolish one or the holy one. And that's really, really hard. And so they come before the Lord with this prayer. And he says, then they say, give us boldness. The end of verse 29. Look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Lord, don't let us change what we're doing because of what they're doing. Don't let us stop. Let us keep on going. They were threatened and they prayed according to the will of God. We know the Messiah is going to win and so we're going to act as though he's winning because he is. So give us boldness. The tension they experience is normal. The tension is the world looks powerful and Jesus is... It seems like he's absent. He's with us by his spirit, but it doesn't feel the same. And so now we have the reality of living in a fallen world by faith. So here we have the psalmist back in Psalm chapter 2 teaching us about one of the ways our faith needs to be strengthened. Let me just say it this way. We tend to be skeptical of God's power and fear the world. When in fact, the Bible teaches us we should be skeptical of the world's power and fear the Lord. But that's hard to do. But that's what the psalmist is teaching us. He says, wait, the world is not as powerful as it seems. And the Lord is more powerful than I recognize. This is the power of God's promises. No one can stop his promise. He is going to appoint his king and sit him on his throne. And we know that will occur... In fact, in reality, it has occurred, but a day will come when we will see it with our own eyes. Let's be more skeptical of the world's power and be more fearful of the Lord and his power. God's plan is unstoppable. More than that, let's look at the second part of Psalm 2. Not only is God's plan unstoppable, God's plan is really, 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 really good. I didn't want to write that because it sounds unintellectual. God's plan brings salvation. So there's the actual point. The power of God's promise. God's plan brings salvation. But here's what I mean by this. Wait, not only is plan unstoppable, his plan is awesome. Wait, 
He could have had any plan. And his one unstoppable plan brings us the most possible benefit. Psalm 2, let's read verses 7 to 12. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The power of God's plan brings salvation. In 2018, a soccer team went into a cave and it got flooded. You remember this? I think there was a movie about it and I didn't want to watch it because it seemed like it was going to be in closed spaces underwater. That makes me nervous. So you have these world-class divers. These guys are, man, incredible. So they're diving. My understanding was it took over three hours to get to where these boys were hidden. If you've read anything about what happened, you know, the, they went into the cave and the, the monsoon season came and then they were unable to get out because the cave was flooded. And so the divers had to navigate deep into the cave uh, to find them. When I was reading uh, one article on it, the diver who found them, he was submerged and he came up out of the water and he didn't, it was completely dark and he knew they were there. He hadn't turned his light on because it was 12 boys living in a hole in the ground for over a week. He came up, oh, they're in here. <laughs> That's what, he, probably not in English. So he shines light and there they were. And their way they were. So, and then what they had to do was they came up with a plan. They were going to get the boys out of the, the cave. Uh, the divers would take the boys. They would give them a sedative so they were asleep. And they would take them out of the cave. It took over three hours for each one of these boys to be dragged uh, out of this cave. So these were really, really good divers. Many of them Navy SEAL type divers. Really, really, really good at their jobs. Very proficient. Of course, we know one of the divers lost his life in those caves. What was the point of the divers in that cave? Was it they have the latest equipment? No, but did they have the latest equipment? Sure hope so. Was it show off their skills? No, but we sure hope they showed off their skills. Was it to be famous? No, but they are in fact famous. I mean, we don't know their names, but everybody knows of them. What was the point? Rescue. That was the point. So there are lots of things that happen according to God's plan. But what is the point of God's plan? To bring salvation. And that's what's incredible about God. He could do things for lots of different reasons, but based on who he is and what he is like, what he does brings us salvation. So unlike the plans of all the powerful nations, God's plan intends to bring the most benefit to those who will receive it. Because remember, powerful nations do all of their things for what purpose? To hold and increase their power. Well, for the benefit of the people. No, the benefit of the people is a secondary effect of powerful nations. The purpose of God's plan is to bring the most benefit people. God, God's plan is and always has been to save people. Verse 7, I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is speaking of David and his line that he is functioning as a son of God. Referring back to, again, you can look up again, 2 Samuel seven fourteen. 
God is approaching the kingship, the line of David, as his son. And why is he doing that? Because the Messiah, the son of David, Jesus, is coming from this line. Why did God do it that way? I don't know. But that's the way he wanted to do it. Did David deserve to be put in this position? No. Absolutely not. Did Solomon deserve to be put into that position? No. Even less so. What about Rehoboam? No, and that's as far as I can remember. Until <laughs> we get to Josiah. What about Manasseh? You have bad news. 50 years of filling Jerusalem with blood. What do you do at the end of his life? Repented. God just saves people that don't deserve it. None of these people deserved to be in the line of the Messiah. God just intends to, by his own purposes, use this line to bring about his purpose, which is the salvation of the world. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. The anticipation is that the Messiah will rule all that is. The people of Israel, before Christ's time, assumed that at some point in history, Israel would rule the entire world. The assumption was the world would be their inheritance, the people of Israel. And in a sense, that is true. Christ has inherited the whole world because of why? He made it. It is his. And so what God is saying is, my son, the Messiah, is going to be an heir, is going to have and keep the entire world. And this is where Israel misunderstood the role of the Messiah. The assumption was the Messiah was going to come, deliver Judah, conquer the world, and they would be awesome forever. What they didn't expect was a Messiah to show up and die. They didn't expect that because they thought salvation must be military and political. Salvation must be military and political and economics. We must have lots of money, lots of safety, lots of power. That is salvation. Wait, that sounds like today, doesn't it? We'll be okay if we have lots of money and lots of safety and our, our guy wins the politics. That's what we think. We'll finally be okay. And that's what the people of Israel thought. And the Messiah shows up and has the audacity to merely save them from their sins by dying on the cross. And they were, they were annoyed by that. But, uh, yeah, thank you for forgiving my sin, but I need a paycheck. Not any king who is powerful. And, and that's what they would... And, and the, the promise here is the Messiah will be heir to the ends of the earth. And verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The assumption will be that the people of Israel will rule all of the world and that's what they expected. And the Messiah came and redeemed the world through the sacrifice of his life. Look at verse 10. We're in Psalm 2 if you're lost. Now therefore, kings, be wise, be warned. Here's where we get to the point of the psalm. You have two choices. One is to be wise. One is to be warned. And you get to choose. You get to choose. Be wise or be warned. What is wisdom? Verse 11 tells us what wisdom is. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Wisdom is allegiance to God by faith. Serve the Lord with fear. 
recognize God is God, you are not, and recognize that your life is his, and so therefore your life ought to be about bringing pleasure and delight to him. Rejoice with trembling. This is joy in recognizing God always keeps his promises even if they seem to be afar off. Finally, verse 12, kiss the son. Allegiance to the son of God, that is the Messiah. That is what wisdom looks like. What happens for those who have wisdom? It's the end of verse 12. Look at it. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wisdom. Serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that is allegiance to the Messiah. And what will you receive? Blessed. You will be blessed because you have taken refuge in the Messiah. If you don't want to do that, okay, what happens then? This is the warning. If you disregard your, the son, you put yourself in the path of judgment. Verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. So some weather came through Southern California. I know in Oregon we don't care. It's like, sorry California. Good luck with that. And fortunately, there, was, there were some pretty good predictions. In fact, they predicted record rainfall in the Palm Springs, Coachella Valley area. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the weather patterns of the Coachella Valley, Palm Springs area. How much rain do they normally get? That's right, none. They get none of the rain. They get all our water, but they get none of the rain. You're welcome, California. That's inappropriate, I apologize. It's right, but inappropriate. Um, so they got a whole bunch of rain. So what did they do? Now, if you've gone out there, if you, or anywhere there's a desert, you will see these, well, they're called arroyos. You know what an arroyo is? It's a place where flash floods run through. And when there are no floods, which is most of the time, those are great places. It's a terrible place to build a house, but it's a great place because you can hang out, walk your dog, look for rattlesnakes and scorpions, whatever you want to do. Because there was plenty of warning, there was nobody standing in an arroyo, right? Nobody drowned. If somebody, if you gave them a warning, listen, you're going to get four inches of rain, this dry arroyo, which hasn't seen water in 50 years, is going to have 12 feet of water going 30 miles an hour, don't stand there. If somebody goes and stands in that, and the water rushes through there, are you going to raise your fist at that rushing water? Curse you, unmerciful water. What would you say if you, why are you standing there? What are you doing in your royal? That's what this psalm is saying about God. And this is what he said, look, here's what God is doing. And if you don't want to go the way he's going, then you're going to get hit by a wall of water. That's, what, that's how this wrath is being described. This is where God is going. And if you're going to get sideways of where he is going, then you're going to end up opposed to him. But he's not going to stop. He's not gonna, his plan is unstoppable. If you want to oppose it, then it's going to run you over. And the Bible is describing that as the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And what's funny is we get mad at God for that. Instead of saying, no, the individual, because God made them in his image and he gave them a will, and the, the individual decided to stand opposed to God. This person chose this. And they experience the judgment of God. Now, I'm not saying that should make us comfortable with it. We should desire that as many as possible might respond to God by 
in faith by his, by his grace, but, but to be mad at God because his purposes is clearly lined out is very, very strange according to the Bible. The power of God's promise, his plan is to bring salvation, so it brings wisdom and a warning. Wisdom is to trust his Messiah for salvation and forgiveness of our sins. There's a warning. If we reject his Messiah, we put ourselves in the place of judgment. This also, this section of this psalm is important to the uh, authors of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is giving a sermon. He's in a Gentile country, but he's also speaking to the Jews. Speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus in Acts 13, beginning in verse 28. I'll get up to the section we're reading here in a minute. They found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. Verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the, the Apostle Paul in this sermon here is saying the resurre resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. That Jesus the son has raised from the dead and God is saying of his son, you are my son, today I have begotten you, meaning having now been raised, you are sitting the throne of David. The kingdom of God is being ushered in. Jesus is raised. He sits on the throne of David, but he has given us pause. He has given a moment now for as many as possible in this time to come to him by faith. So even though he sits the throne, even though he is ruling all the universe as he always has been, we're in this world and it seems a little crazy, doesn't it? Let's look at a couple more verses if you don't mind. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. The author of Hebrews says of this in describing the work of Jesus as far better than even the most powerful of angels. For which of the angels did God ever say, quoting Psalm chapter 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Then he follows that up in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 5 saying this, so also Christ Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. I stop there on purpose to give you a moment to think. Why is that weird? Why is that weird? Is that, did that strike you as weird? Well, it should strike you as weird. Let me tell you why it strike you as weird. When was David a priest? He wasn't. What was David? David was king. And when the son of David is born, what is the son of David? Solomon was a king. Rehoboam was a king. Asa was a Look, I remembered another one. That's good for me. <laughs> Christ Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a what? High priest. But he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he continues in verse six, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is a priesthood that never ends. So Jesus is born as a king, sitting the throne of Zion. But more than that, more than King David, number one, he lives forever. And number two, because he lives forever, he lives to make intercession for us as our priest. He far exceeds what King David could have ever been. He is king. 
He never loses. He never dies. And he is our high priest who never dies. Jesus is the son who is both king and priest. He is a king that rules and a priest that saves. Look again at Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus is king of all that is, and Jesus is priest for all who will seek refuge in him by faith. To kiss the son means I will admit that I am a sinner and need his forgiveness and I trust what he did on the cross to forgive me of my sin. Doing so aligns me with the plan of God and I experience blessing in his refuge. To refuse to believe that I need his forgiveness or to choose to try and earn my own forgiveness or to choose another way of trying to be forgiven is to oppose God and his purposes and guarantees my experience of judgment. My hope would be is everyone would take their refuge in Jesus and Jesus alone. One last thing and then we'll close in about 20 minutes. <laughs> I just want to make reference to this just so you can look at it later on your own time. Verse 9, he refers to the sun. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This rod of iron was a, an understanding of the rule and reign of the Messiah. And this is picked up in, and you can look it up later, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 19. Jesus is re referred to as ruling with a rod of iron. 2, 12, 19. And you're saying, what verse? Wait, you can't do any of the work? Do I? You Google it. Revelation, rod of iron. It's going to give you all of them. Jesus fulfills this psalm at his birth. He fulfills this psalm at his crucifixion. He fulfills this psalm at his resurrection. And the final culmination of the fulfillment of this psalm is in the future when his kingdom will be seen by all in all the world as he rules over all he has made. A couple of things just to mention here that I want you to think about. The power of God's promise. No one can stop God's plan. I want to encourage you just a little bit. Not too much. Just a little bit. I want you to think a little bit about your relationship with God in Christ. How much of your relationship with God do you feel depends on you? I mean, there's a verse, we quote it all. He who began a good work in you is what? Faithful to complete it, unless you really blow it today, and then he's on his heels. Isn't that funny how we think? We assume God's plan for all of eternity is going to work out exactly as he intends it. Oh, except my life. I somehow think I have the ability to mess up God's plan in my life. Think about it this way. Let's think about when you die. That's nice. There's a day coming when you're going to die. I mean, I don't want to be depressing, but it's just statistically accurate. The mortality rate of this planet is like 100%. So there's a day when you're going to die. On that day, you will be in a certain place spiritually. Agreed? So on the day of your death, you will be in a certain place spiritually. Now stop. Right now, in this moment, does God know what that looks like? Do you have the ability to mess that up? No. No. And some of us carry so much 
shame and guilt like somehow we have messed up God's plan for our life. You are not that awesome. <laughs> you can't. You can't do it. And, and some of you, the, the, the few Pharisees are in there. Well, now people are going to do whatever they want. For freedom, Christ has called us to be free. Anyway, um, we might, I might suggest that the notion that God's going to handle it is a much more powerful motivation for me to worship Christ with my life. I do not contribute anything to my sanctification and neither do you. I don't take away anything from my sanctification and neither do you. However, because Jesus is awesome enough to get me to the place he wants me to be just because he's doing it, then I want my life to be an act of worship to him because I love him and I hope you do too. It's really hard to love a guy that you think is staring at you waiting for you to blow it. And he's not doing it. He's taking care of it. He's got a plan for you. God has promised, I think I just quoted it, he who began a good work in you is usually able to complete it. Good, you're paying attention. I want to make sure you're still awake. So he made a promise to you. And what I want you to do and what I want me to do is live like God actually keeps his promises and that I don't have to keep his promise. And be free of this need to earn my salvation and instead simply have my life be an act of worship because he was that kind. I hope that's an encouragement to you. It is to me. Second thing, less of an encouragement. God has given you his best thing. He has given you salvation, forgiveness of all of your sin. He has given you an inheritance. That means in Christ you are heir to the kingdom of God. All that is. And we're a little bit disappointed. We're like really just forgiveness of sin. But I need a job. Really just forgiveness of sin. But I don't feel good. Really just forgiveness of sin. Did you see the news today God? And so we live our lives. In a sort of quiet discontentment with God. Because he had. The audacity to only just give us everything. So God gave us his best stuff. And one of the ways we can have our hearts exhorted is to stop being dissatisfied with what his salvation isn't. Glory is coming, and that day is coming. It's not today. We need to turn our desires and learn to treasure God's best thing, which is Christ. And maybe that will free us from the need to live our lives like Kermit the Frog. With every new thing being in freak-out mode. Last thing, this is for those of us who don't know Jesus yet. Be wise. Be wise. We need to understand something about God. Sometimes we think God is like a teenager who likes another teenager. And he or she is hoping. I hope they like me. And we see Jesus this way. We, Jesus, I hope they accept me as Savior. And if they don't, oh, I'll be so bummed. Like he's a spurned boyfriend or girlfriend. That, I mean, we see it like he's insecure. Like somehow as Savior of the world, he has to be affirmed as Savior of the world. J Jesus is not worried. He is not scared. He wants all to come to him. He, but he is not, we need to understand this about our Savior. He is not desperate. He is loving. But he is king. So we must be 
wise. What is wisdom? Turn to Christ for salvation and accept him because he has lovingly offered salvation. But be warned. To reject Jesus is to move ourselves into that arroyo and that water is coming. And if you want a description of what that looks like, read the book of Revelation. That's exactly what the book of Revelation is. Saying, look, if you want to reject the lamb, this is what life looks like. This is what future looks like. Don't reject the lamb. Power of God's promise. No one can stop God's promise. And God's plan brings salvation. Jesus, we thank you that you are the son of God. The one who has fulfilled all of your promises because you are raised from the dead. God, I would pray for those of us who are here today who know you as our Savior and Lord that you would move in our hearts to trust you more than we trust the power of this world. God, we pray that we would learn like the disciples who saw you as the one who fulfilled Psalm 2 a willingness to turn to you in prayer when the things of this world bring us worry and fear. And to keep our eyes focused, not on our desires for this world, but our desires to be witnesses to the risen Christ. But God, in this moment, my concern is more for those who right now need a warning. That to remain opposed to Christ is to stand in a place of judgment. And I pray in this moment, your Holy Spirit would soften hearts to trust Jesus for forgiveness. And that you would bring new life as we recognize Jesus saves us from our sins and he is risen from the dead. God, we are thankful that you always keep your promises and we can't wait until the day when we see you in power and glory. God, keep us until the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with me as we close with a song?